I'm your producer, Todd Bartu, and this is Offshore Explorer. Offshore Explorer looks at the world from the sailor's point of view, port by port. Together, we share stories that detail the important intersections between sailing, culture, and life, past, present, and future. Coming up on today's episode, safety gear, new boats, boat brokers, and more. But first, let me introduce our host, a lifelong sailor who has traveled the world, raced international 14s, and crossed the Atlantic countless times. A published author who has written for both stage and screen, Mr. Scott Dodson. Hey Todd, how's it going today? It's going great. So what's going on with today's episode? Well, I've got some good news. Um, we've gotten our first uh, affiliation. It's uh, Mustang Survival. Um, for all you boating fans out there, everybody needs their PFD or personal flotation device. And Mustang is one of the, if not the best company for uh, PFDs. Um, I know personally that I had, I mean, I, I bought them 30 years ago, maybe, that I had PFDs from them. They're comfortable. They work. Um, they also have a line of uh, um, all-weather clothing and some really good kit for, you know, going out and, and uh, wakeboarding and sailing and anything outdoors. They're, uh, they're a great little company, and they make a really good quality product. So we're really happy to have them on board. And if anybody is going to buy your boat and you're going to need this equipment, which I discuss in the next episode. Okay, great. So let's continue the discussion on buying a boat. Thanks for listening to part one, I hope. Um, what we're going to cover in this second part is uh, some of the equipment that you need to buy for your boat that you probably won't want to buy. Or uh, you'll say, oh, yeah, I'll get that later, no problem. But uh, trust me, this stuff is very, very, very important. We're also going to cover three different kinds of new boats you can buy and how that process works. Uh, you have your standard production boats, uh, which are already done. You go to the slip or maybe they're outside the broker's office. You, you go on that boat. It's brand new. You look around. You say, hey, great, I'll take it. Um, but there's a bunch of stuff that goes in with that. So it's going to be important to cover that along with semi-custom boats. And these are boats that are... These, these are boats that, that have been... Um, that have a standard uh, layout, standard engines and stuff, but you have the opportunity to customize. And generally, it's interiors, um, sail plans, uh, maybe selection of the engine... Um, and a couple of other things that go into to deciding how to turn what is normally a production boat into a semi-custom production boat. And then the final little place, if you can dream this big, which I am always hoping to dream this big, is my very own custom-built sailboat. And I'll get into that. But first, as an extension of what we were talking about from episode one, if you weren't with us, I was pretty much covering how one goes about buying a essentially a used boat. Um, used boats are way different than used cars because for the most part, boats don't have tremendous amount of usage. Um, engine, you know, anytime I've looked at boats and this is a very, very long career of looking at boats and buying boats. Generally speaking, there's a very little time. If you have a thousand hours on these, on a little diesel Yanmar engine, I mean, the thing isn't even broken in yet. Um, what suffers in the boat for those sorts of things like engines, 
electrical, batteries, any of the kind of physical plant that you have on the boat is the fact that it's not used. Um, it deteriorates because basically it's underwater, okay? And it just deteriorates. And there's nothing really we can do about it except run it. A boat is happiest when it's being run. And there's a lot of things, like I said in the last episode, that it's important to buy all the kinds of spare parts that you could find. Another part of the spare parts list that I left out from last week was uh, electrical uh, spare parts, especially fuses, light bulbs, um, circuit breakers, um, grounding wires, anything that you think can think of on your boat that you have found that looks like it could be replaced by an extra part of it. Um, I told the story about having um, the wrong uh, belt in a plastic uh, bag that was marked correctly, like that was supposed to be my belt, and it turned out it was not the right belt. And uh, the result of that was me having to um, uh, hand steer for almost three days straight. And um, that's a pain in the butt. It's a real pain in the butt. And um, so anyway, going on, and let's we'll get started on, on some of the essential uh, equipment that you need. Now, um, as a disclaimer, I will say that uh, we, uh, we do represent uh, uh, Mustang Survival, which, um, if you're in the know, um, is a brilliant company that creates... Um, PFDs, um, as well as other equipment, um, but a lot of PFDs, and and I know this for a fact that they last, they're durable, they're very strong, um, they are lightweight, um, so they're not uncomfortable to wear, you know, like those big orange uh, um, PFDs, and um, there's a there's service for them also if you need to, you can always buy cylinders to um you know recharge them and all the rest of that i had i had eight of them on my boat because i only went up to carrying eight people and and i had it was a spare if i did four five six people on a crossing i had spares but um i found them to last a very long time and in fact i i bought them it has to be 40 years ago and when I sold my last boat, I still had a couple of them, and they were they were still good. In fact, I popped them open, and they were perfect, and then repacked them. Um, yeah, so hallelujah to uh, Mustang Survival. Um, they're good. They last. Important to have when you're out sailing. Put them on. Wear them. Very important um, for a lot of reasons, like not drowning. So that's the first... PFD thing that you have to you have to buy and have up to date. If you buy a boat and all you have is those old orange uh, uh, PFDs, the big square ones, um, you're doing yourself a disservice because you're never going to wear them. You're going to stick them in the locker. They're going to stay there. Um, they'll never be available for the time that you would use them. So these PFDs you could be wearing. They're comfortable enough to wear, um, especially if you're out racing. Um, you know, even if you're not very far offshore, uh, don't don't think that you don't need it. Um, I had a very good friend of mine who was out racing in Marina del Rey and um, got clipped by the boom when they were tacking, and he went off in the water. He did not have a PFD on, and uh, he drowned. And uh, this is a guy who was like, you know, 40, 42, strong swimmer, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but, uh, hypothermia got him. We think he had somewhat of a heart attack at the same time or near that time. And he, he died out there. If he had a flotation device, he would, uh, he probably would have survived. Um, but anyway, that's, that's just word to the wise as far as that's concerned. The next area that's really, really important, of course, is, uh, life rafts. Now, 
you can buy um, life rafts off of uh, um, with the cradle and everything for you know for like four hundred fifty to five hundred bucks. Um, you can go to West Marine and spend two to five thousand uh, dollars for a life raft. Um, I have two recommendations on this. The first one is is buy a little small one that in case that if you're a coastal sailor that'll serve your purposes as a coastal sailor well you'll be able to get four or five people in six people in the boat um they'll cost you some money but pack them there's actually you could find them used um surprisingly enough have them repacked and inspect it and you can do a pretty good deal but i would i would definitely try to find one um to go on the boat um I got uh, two. Um, actually, I found them floating um, in Charlotte Amalie Harbor. Uh, they hadn't opened. They were just in the boxes uh, floating around after um, uh, Hurricane Andrew. Um, any of you folks will remember a long time ago when Andrew just about flattened Miami. Well, it had run right over um, St. Thomas um, and just devastated the place. And, um, so anyway, they were floating out there and there was no markings or anything. And, um, I ended up with two, uh, beautiful, um, they're like $15,000 life rafts. They were eight man life rafts. So that was a kind of a, that was a, you know, benefit to me. Um, crazy story, but, uh, it's important for you to, to have something on there. I know a lot of people will Life raft wise, will want to, um, you know, not buy a big life raft, buy a small one, keep on deck. You're going to need one for any kind of inspection, especially if you go into a foreign port. Sometimes they'll come out and say, hey, what's your life raft? What's your life raft number? What's your EPIRB? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And you can go through all of that. If you don't have one, they're going to think you're a vagabond and you shouldn't be going into their port or be in their waters. But, um, a lot of people like to use their dinghy and say, oh, the, my dinghy that I'm towing behind me is my life raft. Or it's on the deck, foredeck, um, and it's upside down or hanging from the davits or whatever the case may be. I think that's okay as an alternative. Um, because sinking isn't something that occurs in this sort of a flash it's something that occurs very, very slowly, but somewhat deliberately. And I'll tell you a cute story. It wasn't cute at the time, but it's a cute story nonetheless. Some friends of mine were, were moving um, a 65-foot um, powerboat. I don't know the type, but it, it was made of wood. It was a wood hull, probably some Chris Craft-like uh, fishing type vessel and they were towing their dinghy they were going slow they were going from Madagascar down across the Madagascar Strait into South Africa and Durban and they in the middle of the night they hit a log that gashed a giant hole in their hull and they began to take on water and they began to take on a lot of water so they had a life raft. They put their life, they exploded it, put it out. They also had a dinghy. And they went over and they threw on their Yamaha 15 horsepower um, uh, motor onto it. Um, they took a 55-gallon drum of fuel, um, diesel fuel, that was on the deck because it was a long trip and they were carrying extra fuel. And they put that in the life raft. Then they took all the gasoline that they could that they had, which actually amounted to about 80 gallons worth of gasoline. Um, their food and all kinds of stuff. And this, they did all of this. It took the boat. They said it took the boat about two hours, two and a half hours to sink. And you know, boats don't sink so fast. You'd be surprised. You know, rule number one: if something happens and you gash a hole in your boat or something happens. Um, and you, you, you don't panic. Try to stay with the boat because the boat's going to float. 
these fiberglass boats will float. Um, and they'll float for a long time. And um, I know I've tried to sink a few myself in the day. But, um, yeah, so stay with the boat, etc. So my friends were 600 miles um, from Madagascar and 600 miles from Durban. So they decided they'd get in their dinghy, start up their Yamaha 15 horse, and they were going to mix diesel and gasoline into the engine to keep it running, um, which they did um, successfully, I might add. And then they towed their fuel in their, their life raft. And they had put out mayday calls. They had their EPIRB on, but nobody came for them. So they just started motoring. Um, to know these two guys who did this, Don and, and, and Juan, yes, Don Juan, which is the name of their second boat, um, they were two characters, to say the least. So they just decided to, to motor to Durban. And um, they, they, were, they were out for like six days. <laughs> And the engine kept cutting out and then cutting on. They'd get it to work a little bit. And they, they found a mix between the diesel and the, and the gasoline. And they exhausted all of that, um, finally getting into Durban. And the owner of the boat was standing on the dock and saw him and said, uh, Hey, mate, where's, where's, my, where's my boat? And then they had to explain to him that it had sunk and they had just traveled for, uh, you know, six days in the open ocean in a dinghy driven by a Yamaha 15 horsepower that they were mixing diesel and gasoline in to get to run. The owner wasn't happy. But I only say this as, as you know, using emergency equipment in a, in a different fashion in this story is, is an interesting way to approach it. But um, had they not had the life raft, they would have just been in the dinghy. Um, had they had just a life raft, you know, they would still be floating out in the Madagascar Straits today. On a footnote to that story, the, the reason I mentioned the Yamaha 15 horse, because I had a Yamaha 15 horse for, for years, and then I upgraded to a 40 horse, and um, that just never failed me. I, I'm a complete believer in that. And what made me even more of a believer in that uh, Yamaha uh, little motors was that um, this Don and one, they had bought a big 80 foot steel boat and they were going to do charters down in the Amazon. These guys are crazy. South African guys, crazy. And, um, but they wanted to, they had to get the boat ready. So they took the boat, they had bought the boat, um, I think in Florida, they took it back to Florida and they had it sandblasted. And while they were there working on the boat, somebody stole the 15 horsepower Yamaha off their dinghy, which was running. They were using it all the time. And it was like a tragedy to me that that was stolen. I had told them a ton of times too, that they should just write Yamaha and tell them the story. And they may even want to look at the engine and take it apart and figure it out how it worked and all the rest of that kind of stuff, but it didn't, they didn't. So anyway, that's the sort of cover of uh, life rafts and why they're important. Um, and it's really important to keep them maintained. Um, when I was uh, driving the big, um, a couple of big fed ships, um, we would have a safety day in which we would pop all the life rafts off the off the boat into the water, have the crew jump in the life rafts. We would practice fire drills, um, you know, all of all of the safety stuff that you would need to do on a boat in terms of fight, fighting fire, um, in terms of the boat sinking, etc. And and then we would get all the life rafts back in, and then we would you know take them off to the shop and have them repacked and put back on the boat. Um, but it was good practice for the cruise. So if you have your life raft on your boat for a year or two years or whatever the case may be, go out with, you know, you and your friends can go out, pop the life raft, see how it works, get in it, um, float around for a while, and then bring it back in and, and have it repacked. 
Um, good advice, good practice. The next thing is a medical kit. Now, there's a couple of things that I want to talk about as far as a medical kit, because in, in close to 50 years of being on the water, probably more than that, but like, let's just say 50 is a round number, um, I have saved, I don't know, numbers of people from drowning. Um, on charter, grandma, you know, is on deck. And next thing you know, she falls overboard and she's in the water at night, swimming downwards instead of upwards, completely disoriented. And, um, you know, you get the call, grandma's in the water, you know, and you pop in, you dive down and, and, and get her up and get her back on deck. And, you know, they're more embarrassed than anything else, but, um, you know, drowning is, is a very, very important uh, thing to try not to have happen. Um, when you're the captain of the boat, it's very, very important that you bring all your crew back. There are a few crew, which I will tell stories of this later. And in fact, I may tell this as a Halloween story of crew that um, I really contemplated on throwing overboard seriously. But in any case, so there's a couple of main things that go on when you consider buying a medical kit. First of all, drowning is huge. And from that, being in the water and getting hypothermia, that is a very important thing. We'll, I'll address that. Brain injuries, people getting hit in the head with booms or whatever. Um, I, had a, I had a friend of mine get hit with a sheet that just snapped and, and hit him right across the forehead. And he was, he was unconscious. He, they, that just knocked him out. So this is something you need to be aware of. Um, spinal cord injuries. Um, you know, on a boat, there's a, there's a lot of physical activity. There's a lot of moving around, this, that, another thing. And, and people do end up uh, falling, slipping, falling. Um, you know, we're not all super balanced, adept um, bowmen rushing back and forth across a slippery wet deck, the wind blowing in our hair and grabbing lines and sheets and spinnaker poles and all the rest of that. You know, sometimes we just, you know, we get up to go down and get a drink. We slip on the stairs going down and snap our backs. So it's very important to have that, uh, those plastic uh, back braces for people. Lacerations. People are forever getting cut. Um, I was in Viecas in Puerto Rico, and we were going through a um, through a hurricane at the time. And my neighbor boat, um, we were all kind of tucked in, you know, anchored into um, the little bay in Viecas, which is is really nice, and um, it's a little hurricane hole there, and. Um, the, the mate, the girl in the other boat, was trying to uh, do something with the line on the um, aft um, starboard cleat. And I was literally standing there on no more than about four feet from her. And she got her finger caught. And because, I mean, the wind was blowing 100 and some miles an hour, and, and we were rocking back and forth. And it just, the line just went across her finger and chopped off, like, from the knuckle up. Just took it right off. Um, she was more in shock than anything else. Her finger went into the sea. We weren't going to be able to recover it. Um, but it can happen just that fast. And luckily, uh, we had a good medical kit on board that we could stitch up her finger. A little, you know... I had something for the pain and uh, helped her out a lot. Uh, whiplash is another thing. And uh, guys, this is not the whiplash you get when you go past a boat and there's a bunch of bikinis on it. Um, you know, this is hitting a heavy wave, um, you know, just turning the wrong way. Um, very, very important. But it's one of the bigger causes of uh, injuries on boats is whiplash. And then probably the last one, is electrocution. 
And um, this happens, you know, we all think, oh, yeah, we only have 12 volts running through it. But, you know, a lot of times you can handle a 12-volt shock. It's okay. It's just fine. But I remember once I was, um, I was uh, fixing a fan um, for an air conditioning um, unit underneath the bed. And there was a live 220-volt wire that touched me. And I tell you what, I was very close to not making it. It was everything I could do to move away from it, to roll away from it, to get it off of my skin. And I mean, that thing, this is the first time I've ever really, really been shocked. I mean, I felt like my heart skipped about 20 times in that. It was crazy. It was not a good feeling. So you have to be prepared for something like that. So um, the medic kit, there's a couple out there. There's a company called Medic, and it's a medic kit, um, first aid. Uh, they make really nice uh, backpack stuff. I recommend getting the advanced. Um, costs a little bit more. Um, generally, doesn't come with any boat, even new boats. That you know, there's none of this stuff is on a new boat. Maybe the life rafts are. Um, but for the most part, this kind of stuff isn't. Um, if you're cruising and you're out to sea and you have a real serious problem, whether it be spinal cord injury, a laceration, whiplash, um, you know, hypothermia, somebody's got brain injuries, you're going to be talking, you're going to be talking on the radio to a doctor, hopefully, who's going to be giving you advice on what to do. And you should know what you have to do. So take these first aid courses, know them, be comfortable with them, and, and know what to do. Uh, it's very important because you could have your wife or your husband, um, you know, a lot, somebody you care about, um, and you're going to need serious medical care. At least have the tools there. So that if you're talking to a doctor on your single sideband or VHF or whatever the case may be, if you're talking to your doctor, your sat phone, um, you know, you at least have the tools there. You can tell him what, you know, what the blood pressure is. You can, you know, he can say you could, uh, you know, go ahead and you could sew that up or make sure you do, do this or don't make this tourniquet too tight, but, you know, take it off a little quarter. You know, lots of little things that you wouldn't think of that come from an experienced physician. And having the tools on board to execute what the physician would execute if he was there, um, the end of the day, you're going to be really, really, really happy. You spent a couple of extra bucks getting this stuff organized. So we've covered the essential stuff. The PFDs, the medical kit, the life raft. There's a couple of things that I want to throw in there. Um, first of all, one of the things that um, I was slow to pick up on is when you get a toothache and you're out. Um, nothing is crazier than having a toothache, like say you're in the Caribbean somewhere, right? Um Okay, I'd rather go home to my dentist, you know, who I know, you know, who's been treating me. Nothing against the people in, you know, St. Bart's Dental School, but yeah, I don't know. Um, dental care is very different um, all over the world. Um, I had to have a few, I had a tooth pulled when I was in Italy. And as it turned out, I was lucky enough to um, find a dentist that spoke English and he still didn't, he still didn't understand. He, he put a temporary filling in. I said, no, 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 don't put a temporary filling in. And this other tooth that I had a problem with, put this in. But I mean, I was in so much pain and he, he pulled this tooth and, and it was, you know, it solved the problem. Okay. But if you're out on the water and I've had this happen, I've been with people that have had, you know, their tooth starts bother them, this, that, another thing. Make sure you have some tooth, you know, some painkiller for your teeth. That's all I'm saying. Um, the heavier duty, the better. Um, you know, if you have a toothache and you lay in your bed and you put your hand on there and it throbs and you cry and it's just like a pain in the ass until you get to the dentist's office, that's one thing. 
but try rolling around in your bunk with a toothache um, and it's going crazy and the pain is just getting amplified every time the boat moves and it's not going to stop moving. Um, yeah, get something you can put on your tooth and kill the pain and I don't care what it is just as long as something will do that. Another thing to have recommendation from me is at least two, possibly three, old-fashioned hot water bottles. Um, I used to, on my boat, I used to do dive charters. And um, in the Caribbean, now I know, I know the, the water today in Florida, for example, was like 92 degrees which is unbelievably warm. I've, I've felt it at 86 um, out in the Windward Islands, but uh, 92 is, is it's like even too hot for a bath almost. Um, but people do get hypothermia, you know, if they fall in the water. Um, I used to have people that would have these uh, ultra-thin uh, dive suits thinking, oh, it's the Caribbean, and we're going to go for a dive. And they ended up getting mild cases of hypothermia just because they stayed in the water so long. And it happens. Um, hot water bottle is a brilliant thing to have to put underneath someone's armpits and between their legs and their crotch. Um, it will heat the blood that's the best little places to do it. Um, I have heard of people filling up uh, plastic bags um, from the water, the hot water coming out of their engine exhaust, like in the middle of the ocean. But I could never figure that out because, you know, you're always going to have like hot water. Um, you know, if every boat has, has an auxiliary system, which the hot water, the fresh hot water is run off of the engine temp you know, which is a good thing to have. And um, so you can always get it out of the out of the spigot, I suppose. But in any case, it was a, it was a novel idea to take it off of the uh, of the engine exhaust, put it in a warm bag. But it go put it, put the hot water bottles up underneath your armpits. And and the hot water bottles are also really good um, if you you get a bruise or something. Um, just the short aside as far as that is, I was spinnaker sailing on the uh, back of a friend of mine's boat, and there were two of us, and um, we had a big spinnaker, right? And we had a line run across the spinnaker, and this girl, she she would hold on one side of the spinnaker, I would hold on the other side of the spinnaker, and then they would sort of, you know, reel us out so that we could float a little bit. Well, she got about 10 or 15 feet. We got a little bit of gust, and we started to go up a little bit, and she let go. The key thing is, is not to let go, but to let go. And when you let go, uh, do it all at once. You know, together. Boom. Then you're safe. In this case, I was still holding on. I couldn't figure out, and we shot up to about 60 feet in the air. And the guy who was controlling it, the clown that he was, um just thought it was hilarious and the chute shook me loose and I fell about 50 60 feet into the water on my side I did my old 82nd airborne um uh tuck and tucked my chin down to my chest brought my knees up and I hit the side of my head and lost my breath um I could I couldn't breathe and um, I bruised uh, my neck and like my throat area. And it was, it was just, I couldn't talk. I was swollen. But that good old fashioned hot water bottle with some ice in it, right on the neck, was a great, great, great thing to help me uh, get better from that. So there's all sorts of crazy stuff that's out there. So have your medical kit ready. So before we were talking about this, uh, buying a boat, and a lot of you are looking at buying, you know, boats that are used, and I've outlined, you know, your reasons, first of all, your reasons um, for sailing, and if you're going to be a day, day sailor, coastal sailor, you're going to be a racer, 
Are you going cruising? Are you, you know, looking for blue water boats? Which I kind of don't like the whole idea of blue water boats, you know, because oftentimes I think them, you know, just what are the big heavy things, you know, full keel, whatever. Um, There's some boats that can, that are coastal boats that are light, fast, um, very stout, um, make uh, great uh, cruising boats. Um, for a long time, I was down on Beneteau, um, like a Beneteau 50, not a smaller one. Size is important. The ladies tell you this. And um, a Beneteau 50, I, 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 I took a Beneteau 50, and I, I went across the, uh, from Charleston, uh, South Carolina, um, to uh, Antigua. And it was to be a part of the, the fleet of um, charter boats down there. And um, I was actually pretty impressed with it. I thought it did a pretty good job. And, um, you know, not every boat is, 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 you know, the lighter the boat, the less comfort it is. Um, my CT was, you know, fast enough, heavy enough, you know, that was good. But once you get above 50 and 65, um, I've sailed uh, a Genoa 65, uh, which is sort of uh, the the better version of a Beneteau, um, and is very solid. It's a good it's a good ocean going going boat. Um, so there's a a lot of things you could talk about, but the first this is I was talking about used boats before, and now we're just going to talk about buying production boats. So Genoa's a production boat, Beneteau's a production boat, Catalina's a production boat, Moody. You know, Moody is a has a production line, but they can they they offer they also offer um, semi custom. I say Moody because I've been kind of looking at them recently and thinking I'm shopping. Yes, I admit it. I'm shopping for a new boat. So, in any case, um, size is important. Um, so if you're going to get a new boat, um, you're going to essentially buy something off the lot. And let's let's just do. The new boat off the lot. Let's say, um, let's say it's a new Catalina or a new Hunter. Um, you know, something. It's a family boat. You know, you're going to go out, put the family on it, and here in Southern California, we're going to go out to the islands, out to Catalina Island, you know, or you know, wherever. But we're just going to go out, and we're going out for family fun to enjoy ourselves and to sail. Okay, we're not, you know, we're not going to be going to Tahiti tomorrow. Um, you know, it's just a weekend kind of sailing thing. And this is where buying a, 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 a standard off the shelf kind of boat is a good thing. Now, when you do this, you have to understand when you buy a boat like this, it is, there's nothing on it. Okay. They may sell you, um, electronics packages. Um, if you're a coastal sailor, yeah, it's great to have electronics. Don't get me wrong. But that's something you could almost always get. Now, if I was in the northeast, Pennsylvania, northeast of um, the United States or in England, uh, northern France, um, the Black Sea, any of those places that are, get a lot of fog, okay, radar was the first thing that I would want. Would I, I would like to have a radar GPS plotter. Perfect. Chart plotter. Perfect. A lot of this stuff you can get to sort of be on your uh, iPad um, as far as chart, chart plotters and GPS and all the rest of that kind of input stuff that you need. Um, things have changed a lot and they've become less expensive. But, you know, you're just going to want to do the stuff that's buy stuff that's important for the boat. OK, don't get caught up in all the packages. Standard sales, you know, whatever the package is for these sales. Um, you know, be it a jib or Genoa or, you know, a spinnaker or whatever the case may be, you know, the broker will tell you all this stuff. All right. And I wouldn't worry too much because you're going to customize it yourself as your needs go along. Okay. I mean, I've had people buy spinnakers and, um, never use them because it's just, they forget how to put it up or they're just not comfortable in putting it out there. Um, you know, I'm crazy. I, I try to put anything I can get up. I, 
you know, I'd wear, put my underwear up if I could get another half knot of speed out of it. Um, so, but it depends on what you're doing. If you're going to have the family and you're taking them out for a weekend to go swimming and snorkeling, um, or fishing or whatever the case may be, you know, you don't need to get too elaborate. Custom, a regular, you know, off the shelf type of boat, production boat will be perfect for you. Now, if you get into something that's a little bit bigger and you're thinking about something, for example, that's semi-customed. Now, this falls into some of your, you know, like boats from like from the yard, from yards, pendennis, or maybe it's a power boat from like San Lorenzo or um, uh, or a fed ship or um, various other kind of big power boats and. And uh, maybe it's a yungert, um, although they're production boats, quote unquote, you can customize them to your own needs. And usually when you customize a boat like that, and I've done that for a couple of owners. I had a Perini Navi, which is 120 feet, um, brand new. And we, it was in a build and I was brought in as a skipper slash surveyor. And this is a really important thing to do if you are going to build a boat or semi-custom a boat or build a custom boat, you need to have a full-time captain slash surveyor. Um, there's, a there's a couple of guys out. There's a lot of guys out there, not just a simple surveyor, but like the guy who's going to run your boat, your captain, your skipper, because I'm talking about bigger boats here. You know, I'm talking 90 feet, 85, 90 feet, 100 feet. All right, you're going to have a skipper run the boat for you. Now, I know a lot of my listeners are going like, now we're getting into the expensive stuff. Why should I ever listen? Well, let me just say this, is the stuff that I have learned from running big yachts has been, I've applied it to running my own boats and smaller boats. Um, and it's really helped out because these people that run these big, Yachts, 105 feet, 120 foot sailing Perini Navis. Okay, these boats, they know a lot of stuff and they know how. I mean, if you had one third of their knowledge and their technical ability, your boat would sail way, way better and way, way faster. And it would be way, way better maintained. So that's why learning from the big boys, as I used to call them, is a really, really important thing. Which get, and it's just as a side note, you know what? The whole idea is experience is the main thing in sailing. All right, you you can go to all the schools you want to, but it doesn't substitute for being out on the water and having the experience of sailing in all sorts of different conditions, and learning and learning and learning. The best skippers that I have ever met are constant learners. They learn. They have a desire to learn. They don't put people down because they don't know, because they were them once, okay? They help people along. So keep that in mind. That's, you know, that kind of thing in the sailing community is vital because that's how you spread the knowledge. That's how you, you keep the sailing community alive and brilliant and, and kind and fun, okay? Yelling, screaming, you know, get off my boat, I'll drown you. You yell at me. Okay? Anyway, that's my soapbox for that moment. So having, let me get back to the skipper slash surveyor. I'll take an example. I built and been the skipper slash surveyor on four boats. A Heeson yacht of 180 feet. It's a powerboat, um, magnificent yacht. It was, uh, was working for an Indonesian guy. Um, a um, custom uh, sailboat uh, from Penden it was built in the Pendennis Yard in, in England um, for an Argentinian family. And uh, a powerboat, um, which actually turned out to be five powerboats from San Lorenzo for a, a Finnish owner. And I know if anybody from San Lorenzo 
here's this, they will go, oh yeah, I know who, and they would say that because it's full of stories on that one. And, um, and the other one was, of course, the Perini Nave, uh, which was, you know, um, 90, 100, 120 foot um, sailing motor yacht, which we built. The reason you do that is hire somebody to do that for you is pretty simple. They're your advocate and they know stuff. Like when I first went to the San Lorenzo yard, one of the first things I noticed about all the boats were that the hinges, um, the door hinges, um, the platform, which the captain's seat sat on, um, was just shoddy. They were, they weren't strong enough. They weren't good enough. You know, they were, they would break. They look great. They're shiny. Um, and, um, I made some input to having them change things like hinges and door handles, um, on the exterior of the boat. And, and they did, they said, Oh, well, yeah, I said, no, you got to have this because this is going to break and it's going to come out and it's going to be a problem and it's not going to make your boat look good. And, um, you know, another thing is, is, uh, in the engine room, you got to keep your eyes on these guys because the yard is going to be telling you one thing. The project manager is going to be doing something else. They're trying to save money. The project manager is trying to save money. So he's looking for ways to reduce his budget. And in many cases, he's looking for ways to put money in his pocket. And I had this, I had this big row, and here's what it was about. We were putting the engines in a 90-foot San Lorenzo, these big 458, um, 48, 48 14s or 48-41s um, Caterpillar diesel engines. A magnificent thing. I, I would have one as a piece of architecture in my garage to just go and stare at. They were so beautiful. And um, we, we're putting two of those in the boat. But I had to go um, from Italy. I had to go take some captain's tests. Woohoo! Yes, you have to keep your license up to date. So I had to go and take a bunch of courses and stuff. And I was going to be gone for a month. So we were building the boat. That was great. Went to Florida. Spent a month doing all the courses. Learning how to use life rafts, by the way, in a pool. Um, learning how to fight fires. Uh, learning about medical stuff, getting my first aid a license and certificate renewed, getting my radar renew, um, certificate renewed, and the safety stuff. Anyway, a bunch of stuff. Anyway, I came back, and the engines were in. And I was really quite surprised because I didn't think they would get the engines in that fast. And one of the things that I noticed is the exhausts the exhaust in these engines are, you know, maybe there's there's they're supposed to be stainless steel tubes, okay, that are about two feet, two and a half feet in diameter, okay, and they're the water exhaust that goes out of the boat. They go from the engine into the side exhaust, which exhausts out the back of the boat. These end up holding water. A lot of times, but they're wrapped in 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 temperature blankets, okay, in asbestos, you know, the silver blankets they put on for heat. And I noticed when I got into the engine room, because as a surveyor, I have the right to go on the boat to look at the work. And it's really important because I could see where all kinds of stuff that I wouldn't know just getting on the boat that I wouldn't even know was there. Sorry, Todd, that was um, that was a phone call in the middle of all this. And um, so anyway, let me pick up to let me pick up where I was at. Um, so the engines are in. So I gotta figure out where I was. Um, 
So I was surprised, I mean, really surprised that the engines were already installed. Um, and they had V drives. If you don't know what those are, is the engine is actually facing backwards. And a V drive um, goes uh, forward into the gearbox, which runs the opposite direction with the with the, the to the prop and um so they had all of this stuff and saw and i was i was noticing i was wondering why these engine exhausts were wrapped already because they hadn't put anything else in any any other um soundproofing or fireboard or anything like that inside the engine room at the time and i got like i was like Something just clicked in my head to say, go look at this. And this is what I hope if you hire somebody that they, as a captain surveyor, that they'll do. And what it was is I went and I, I looked at the metal for the exhaust. Now, these tubes are about, say, three, four feet, maybe long, two and a half feet in diameter. They're expensive chunk of metal basically, for the exhaust. And they handle a lot of water, a lot of salt water, a lot of warm salt water. And it's very important that they're the right type of material. They should be stainless. And when I was inside the engine room, the manager, project manager, came up behind me. And he goes, what are you doing in here? You can't be in here. And I said, dude, I said, you know, he's speaking Italian to me. My Italian was, is not very good at all. And I, I, I'm saying like, wait a minute, wait a minute. There's a problem here. Okay. So I peel a little bit of cover. Oh, you can't do that. We just did this. Blah, blah, blah. And he's getting all on my, I mean, like really getting on me. And I looked at the metal and I, I grew up in a machine shop. My dad had a machine shop. Okay. Um, I've worked metal. That's, that's, that's what I did when I was, my high school job when I was a kid, swept the shop floor, we made stuff. I learned how to weld and drill and run presses. And we all worked with stainless steel and high performance alloys. I know what I speak of. And I said, dude, this is not stainless. It's supposed to be stainless. I think it was supposed to be 316 stainless. Oh, no, no, no. That's what it is. That's, that's standard. That's what we put in the boat. But you can't be in here now. You can't. You've got to leave. And he was really upset. So the coordinator, because in every yard, you're going to have a coordinator. And he's going to be the one that sort of coordinates your boat. Okay. So he's going to be, he's going to work with the, sur the surveyor, the captain, and the owner. Um, and he'll be the one to say, hey, we're going to put in the windows today. Would you like them tinted or not tinted? Um what um, would you like it, the interior wood to be very shiny or, or a matte finish? That's, the, that's his job. And so I go back to him and I tell him, I said, look, this, that's supposed to be stainless steel in there. It's just regular, it's just regular steel. And I said, if it, it will rust in less, in less than a year. I said, the, the thing will explode and there'll be holes all over the place. Oh, no, 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 no. He would never do that. He would never do that. I said, well, he did do that. And I said, we're going to put a stop to everything, and I want this solved. So very important. I actually did get, it, it actually was just regular um, standard pressed steel. And I ended up getting the 316 put in, and the project manager um, was very upset um, I had to really keep my eye on him because he, he, he just hated me from then, you know, it was like, it was crazy. Um, but Hey, that's the way it is. It's supposed to be 316. Check your specs, stay on top of your specs and keep on going. You know, in a lot of cases you get to answer questions that, you know, like, do we want to put lights here? like underneath the seats or where do we want to do this and how do you want to arrange the jacuzzi? You know, all this kind of stuff. Most of us have absolutely nothing or care about whatsoever in terms of sailing and stuff. You know, the type of, of curtains and all the rest and, you know, that's sort of what you end up doing until you get the boat ready to go. 
And then when the boat is finished and it moves out of the yard and it's customized or semi-custom and it goes into the water, it floats, thank goodness, then they spend a great deal of time trying to get the boat to sit properly. Something that people don't realize very often is that boats can be kind of cockeyed. You could build them on land and think that you've got something perfect, um, but they'll go in the water and they'll have like a list to a little bit. So it's, <laughs> it's important to know how they correct the list um, because you don't want to be rummaging around in your, um, in your, in your galley or something and say, what are these chunks of metal doing in here? Oh, well, they put them in there so that the boat could to correct a list of one or two degrees. So the boat would go straight and, and, and ride, you know, level. Um, little things like that. But little things like that are something you spend a lot of time on, okay? There's a lot of discussion. And then the second part, or the, the next big part, after you've got the stuff, uh, the boat in the water, you got some of the stuff on the boat. Um, it's drivable. The engines run. You've got the, in our case, we had the guys from Caterpillar come out, check the engines out. They come with you um, when when you go out to do your first your first ride around. Okay, and and this is fun. And now one of the things you should do is should always bring your own GPS, handheld GPS. So that you, your boat is supposed to, say, go 25 knots cruising speed. Well, make sure that you have your own GPS because the guys from the yard will go, oh, yeah, we're doing 25. Boom. And then we'll turn around and reduce it. And you look at your GPS and, and you're doing like 18 or 19. You know that the boat's not trimmed right. It's not doing something right. Okay. So... These shake, this shakedown is a really important thing to go out and, and have somebody who knows what's going on with a boat to be able to check it out. And then they check out all the systems. You go through every single system. You go to the, to the heads. You go to the showers. You turn on the waters. You make, check to see if the actuators come on. I mean, I, we, had a, we had a thing where the, in the owner's cabin, the gray water from the shower... The owner came up and said, oh, yeah, the, the shower is backing up. I was like, how can the shower be backing up? You know, it's like the boat is brand new. You're the first one ever to take a shower in there, and it's backing up. Well, as it turned out, they left a plug in the tank to a, but connected the drain pipe to it, but still left the, the, the plug in the tank. So I had to undo that and unplug it, take the plug out, redo it, and all the rest of that kind of stuff. But it's just little stuff like that that makes, you know, that makes the boat. And, of course, today, um, there's no, people don't use copper tubing anymore for water, etc. Everything is done with plastics, okay, and really strong stuff. So, you know, you should familiar, familiarize your stuff, your um, experience or knowledge with... Uh, how to glue all that stuff together in case you have to do a repair or something or whatever. But this stuff is great. I'm, I'm so happy they, they use plastic instead of um, uh, copper tubing. It's, it just makes everything better. Um, so anyway, that is, you know, after you get the shakedown cruise, they come back and then you start putting stuff on the boat. And then they're going to make a delivery. All right. And the case of this San Lorenzo, we were going to go from the yard, San Lorenzo the yard, to um, Antibes, uh, France. And it's it's a day sail. It's a good day sail on, on a boat like this. And um, so everybody, but the captain slash surveyor does not get to drive the boat. There's a delivery captain that drives the boat. And because of insurance, and only when the boat is officially signed over do you does the captain get to drive the boat after doing all the work and putting it together, etc.? And then always there's the case of, you know, things that need to be fixed, things that you didn't think were going to work. Like, you know, the cranes to put a dinghy, take a dinghy from the water and put it up on the aft deck. They have stops in them so that the um, arm of the crane doesn't hit the superstructure. And I didn't have time because I was very, very busy with other things in the boat, you know, 
like getting the jacuzzi to work and all of these other things and um, making sure the refrigerators were full and stocked and just normal stuff that you would do for, you know, a private, private yacht for someone. And the owner was up there playing with the crane. I mean, it's his boat. He can do whatever he wants. But he, he burnt the motor out by taking the arm and smashing it into the superstructure. Oh, this doesn't work. Fix it. Okay. <laughs> that's, 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 that's the captain's job. So anyway, or the engineer's job, depending on how big the boat is. And um, so that was just something that I completely forgot to, to, to put in with the crane because I hadn't used the crane. I hadn't done anything with the crane because when I took over the boat from the yard and the delivery captain, the dinghy was already up on the back of the boat and the crane was sitting over it and everything was ship shape. And, you know, it's great. It's a crane. Yeah, I know how to use it. I know how to use it. I've used them before. No problem. Well, there was a problem because I forgot to put the stops in it. And um, even though it was on my to-do list. So anyway, that's a couple of the things about buying boats. But I guess the most important thing is, is, is don't let the broker do the work for you. Um, once the broker gets the, the cash on the barrel kind of thing and his commission, um, you know, he's, he's done. I mean, he, he may be around. He may be able to help you with a couple of questions here and there. He may be able to find stuff for you. But for the most part, he's pretty much psychologically checked out. So just keep your, keep your head in the game and learn how to do these things yourself. So quickly in summation about the whole thing, when you buy a new boat, know what your purpose is going to be. Are you going to be a coastal sailor? Are you going to be cruising soon? Don't buy a cruising boat now if you're not going to be cruising for 10 or 15 years. Um, buy, your something, buy yourself something you could use today. Um, just don't think that you can buy a boat um, without getting it. You can finance boats. Um, and that's always something to look into. Make sure you get the right kind of insurance. Um, the insurance, I haven't talked too much about that, but I, I've had my wrangles with the insurance company, but I was always kind of happy that I had it. And um, I'd had to switch up the insurance um, a number of times. I had changed designations. I had to change flags. Lots of different things involved with insurance, especially when you travel internationally. Make sure that you have the right safety equipment on your boat. Keep it up to date. Keep it fresh. Um, of course, I'm, I'm recommending um, Mustang Survival. Um, if you click on the link that's on this page for this, um, it'll take you right there, and I'd appreciate it uh, if there's anything you need to buy from them. Um, they make great stuff, really solid, heavy-duty, professional, like, okay, you're going to feel comfortable and safe wearing and using their equipment. Um, doesn't get any better. Um, and then the medic first aid kit, really, really important to have that. Um, and a life raft for your boat. Very important that you have a life raft for your boat. So these are some of the things that I recommend if you're going to buy a new boat. And if you're a person out there who really is going to buy your out, yourself a, a big boat, all right, and I'm talking 90 feet, 100 foot, 120 foot, either power or sail, um, I highly recommend finding a broker that works with those boats in particular. Um, there's a special breed. Um, most of the brokers that work in that area um, are generally ex-skippers, and they know the boats quite well. Um, and they know, you know, your Alejandras, um, uh, some of your big oysters, um, all of these boats, or Pendennis boats, all of these boats are really, really important. J-boat class, if you go to, I mean, literally, I was chit-chatting with a guy a couple of years ago, and he ended up, he ended up buying, I forget the name of the boat. Um, it's an Australian um, built boat, and I can't remember the name of it, but in any case, and, and you know, it was 150 feet sailboat. 
And it was like he was really excited to buy it. And, you know, he had the dough to do it, and he went and did it. But he has to go through the same thing that somebody buying a 30-foot Olsen or Catalina. It's the same principles, same ideas. Know the purpose. Make sure you're kitted out correctly. And um, you'll be happy with your boat. Thank you. That was great, Scott. Uh, sounds to me like safety gear is very important for any boat. And if you are looking to buy some safety gear, make sure you check out Mustang Survival for your own PFD. And I'll leave a link in the show notes to take you directly to their homepage. So on top of that, what do we have planned for next week's episode? Well, we thought, I thought we would do um, uh, a sense of place. Um, People have asked me to do more places that I've been and talk about them and tie the history and all the rest of it um, together with the sailing. So uh, a place that I lived for two years, and I operated my charter business for close to uh, 16 years, um, it's Rhodes, Greece. And uh, Rhodes is a very interesting place. Um, very historical, and um, it's a it, it's also a perfect place for for uh, yachting, and you can get to a lot of places. Um, it's a real center of um, of boating in the Dota Canessi and um, along the uh, the Blue Water Coast or the Turkish Blue Coast. So um, I'm th- going to tell some stories about that. Thank you for tuning in. If you like this episode, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, be sure to rate and review. You can find us on Facebook and at offshoreexplorer.org. You can also listen to past episodes at offshore-explorer.simplecast.com. Our theme song is sung by Paulette McWilliams, with additional music by Amanu Itomi and Tommy Twang. Until next time, fair winds and calm seas.